0: Well, as we get uh, ready to dive back into the book of Acts, I wanted to tell you about something that happened this week. Uh, about five years ago, uh, there's a lady who works over at Coronation Mall in the dollar store. Her name is Christina, lovely lady. We interacted with her a bunch of times. We'd be buying stuff for the church, and she, we were always buying lots of something because it's a kid's camp or some craziness going on. She's like, what is it this time? So we really got to know her, and uh, all of a sudden, yeah, probably about five years ago, her husband, heart attack, passed away uh, suddenly, and so we found out about it, ended up taking up a plant, a card, The guy from the church at that time uh, was a neighbor, so we prayed with her, those kind of things. And it was one of those experiences I walked away from, and I thought, yeah, it's a good thing. We, we showed some love, some kindness to a neighbor, but you know what? I don't think that really made any much of an impression or didn't really accomplish much until Tuesday. And uh, she called up and she says, yeah, it's Christina. I don't know if you remember. I said, yeah, I totally remember. And she said, uh, my elderly mother just passed away. She was 100. And I said, wow, that's some incredible genetics you got going there. And she said, I, my family and I were just wondering, could we all come down and, and you would just pray for us? And there's a service out at Cedar Memorial Gardens today. And so they came down, I grabbed a table, threw out some water glasses, and I'm like, what do unchurched people relate to? 23rd Psalm, printed a bunch of those, uh, read it with them, and uh, it was just an amazing little time. And uh, it it was a great reminder for me that a couple things. Number one, it's so important for a local church to be here with its doors open at the moment people need it. And, uh, and secondly, maybe those little things that we don't think matter at all, maybe they do leave an impression. So, yeah, just thought you'd like to know some of the interesting little things that happen. Uh, well, we are continuing our venture through Acts, and we're almost at the end. Uh, we are in Chapter 27 today. Uh, I've entitled this A Perfect Storm And uh, in the fall of 1991, three separate storm systems converged in the North Atlantic. And there was a boat called the Andrea Gale, and it was a sword fishing vessel. And it actually was caught right in the eye between all three storms. And Sable Island is 316 kilometers off the coast of Nova Scotia. And the Andrea Gale was another 290 kilometers northeast from there. Those guys were way out in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, And we're going to watch the trailer because they made a movie of it. This is just to scare you this morning. (laughs) In the fall of 1991, the Andrea Gale left Gloucester, Massachusetts and headed for the fishing grounds of the North Atlantic. Two weeks later, an event took place that had never occurred in recorded history. interesting uh, so that movie was released in 2000. Two years before my dad and six other guys were on a halibut tripping fishing trip way out they were halfway between Cape Scott top end of Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii exactly halfway and they always have the weather running over the VHF and uh, and they're always really good at monitoring And everything was calm, all the projections were calm for the next week, and all of a sudden this flash hurricane warning came up. And uh, they said, you know, massive danger, if you are in Queen Charlotte Sound or anywhere around Vancouver Island or the Queen Charlottes or Haida Gwaii, get out of there. And so they had this little emergency meeting and they looked on the plotter and they were exactly halfway Vancouver Island or Haida Gwaii and they said all right it's a a collective decision which way are we going and they all voted for Vancouver Island and uh, yeah you can uh, talk to my dad about it the next time he visits but unbelievably intense. I think it took them 18 hours to make it to Cape Scott and they don't know exactly how fast the wind was blowing where they were but there's a weather reading station on an island at the back end of an island close to the mainland, and it was reading 85 miles an hour. So they figure it was probably over 100 where they were. And my dad said, you know, he's been in rough water his whole life, but he said the waves were like mountains, like absolute mountains. And he would ski down into the trough and then back up, and he kind of sat in the co-pilot's chair, and my cousin Paul was the captain, and he would be like, okay, Paul, turn now. And they would hit the top of the way, break through it and go down and then they would turn and run towards Vancouver Island and then my dad would say, turn and then they would go up. It just went on hour after hour, completely exhausting. And uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but the best line was all the unchurched guys on the crew looked at my dad and like, Jack, you're praying, right? (laughs) He's like, yes, I've been praying the whole time. Well, in our text today, in Acts chapter 27, there is a massive storm, probably one of the worst storms the Mediterranean Ocean can throw at some mariners. And the Apostle Paul, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Aristarchus, and 273 other people on this ship find themselves in the middle of this storm. Pretty intense. That's why we've titled it, A Perfect Storm. Now, like most voyages, it doesn't immediately start out with a storm. Uh, It's pretty calm at the beginning. So we've entitled the first point, Smooth Sailing. So let's untie from the dock and start the journey. Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open Sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snitus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhaven's, near the town of Lysaia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was past the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. All right, so we kind of get the the beginnings of the journey. Now, they threw a lot of names and places at us, so we need a bit of a map. So starting down, bottom right corner, Caesarea, that's in Israel, and then it says they journeyed up to Sidon, and then from there over to what we call Turkey today, the coast, and they hit a bunch of spots there through the islands, and then came around Crete, and they are on the the bottom side of Crete. Now, as we found throughout this series, a little bit of background information is really helpful, because we didn't live in the first century in the Mediterranean world. Now, What you need to know is that the breadbasket for the Roman Empire was in Egypt. The Nile River flows down, floods the delta, and it's incredible farmland. Wheat and corn and spelt grow incredibly well there. And so there was constantly ships going from Egypt all the way up to Italy to deliver the grain. And there was actually a whole division of the Roman Navy set up to have armed soldiers on grain ships, so that they wouldn't get robbed by pirates. Now, the route that the ships have to take is interesting because of the way the winds blow. You couldn't just go straight from Egypt over to Italy. You had to go up past Israel, the exact route they were going. Now, that's what makes verse six, understandable. It says, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. So it's from Alexandrian Egypt. It's up there on the coast of Turkey where they switch ships. And why is it going to Italy? It's full of grain. And before I looked up, I thought, so how can Julius, the Roman centurion, just kind of walk onto a brand new ship and say, we're moving all these people over here and we're going to sail with you. Well, he can do that because Rome is actually paying the bill. It's paying the shipping bill. It's paying the sailors. And the captain would be pleased to have a Roman centurion and his soldiers on board. That's more protection against pirates. It also explains uh, why the ship's going to, to Rome. It's loaded up with grain. Now, later in the story, we find out that there's actually 276 people in total on the ship: Paul, the captain, the owner of the vessel, Julius the commander, Aristarchus, Luke, who's writing it all down, and then a whole bunch of sailors and the rest are prisoners being brought to Rome. Now, we kind of found a picture of uh, they've recreated an ancient uh, Roman vessel there, so it gives you an idea of how it would be. You can see the big steering oars in the back and the square sail. Uh, But the vessel, obviously, to hold 276 people and a whole hold full of grain would have probably been at least three times that size. So a really big ship. And the other event that happens en route is that Paul kind of wins the trust. He wins the friendship of Julius, the Roman commander. How did this happen? Well, scholars have kind of speculated maybe Julius was stationed there at Caesarea in the palace. Remember, Paul had been in prison there for almost two years. And Paul had been on trial numerous times, time after time. And so the speculation is maybe Julius saw this. He saw how bold Paul was in his defense and how clear he was in telling everyone the real truth and that he was innocent. It could have just been from Caesarea on the journey. When you're on a sailing ship, you got lots of time to chat. Whatever it was, Paul established credibility with this Roman centurion. And that's actually going to be life and death important later in the account. I've quoted uh, F.F. Bruce, Bible scholar, throughout this series. This is what he said. It says, Paul's genius for friendship manifested itself in an early stage in the voyage. He so won the confidence of the centurion, but by the time they arrive at Sidon, he was allowed to go ashore on parole and visit his friends. You know, Paul's personality, his godly character, really comes through the book of Acts in how he treats people wherever he is. The tougher the circumstances, as the account goes on, the more trust Julius the Roman centurion puts in Paul. Paul would later write in his letter to the church in Colossae these words. He would say, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I love that. Paul lived it out. He wrote those words and he walked the walk. You know, Julius the, the centurion is an outsider to Paul. Paul's Jewish. Julius is Roman. Paul's a Christian. Julius is not. At least not yet. We're not told the end of that story, but I think he was probably a changed man by the end of this story. Paul lives what he preaches. And all of a sudden, it made me think about my own week, about the week of everyone in our church as we're spread out, uh, interacting with people all over our community, whether socially or volunteering or whether we're at work. And what new people did God bring into your life this week? Maybe somebody new at your work shift and you're getting to know them. Maybe you were at the grocery store, you were stuck in a long line waiting Maybe the cash register broke down or something. Did you chat with the people next to you? Uh, maybe you went and got your hair cut. Instead of staring straight ahead into the abyss silently, you can talk to your hairdresser and, uh, and engage them. You know what I found incredibly easy to talk with unchurched people about is our Syrian refugee project, bringing the Sridha family to be new Canadians here. There is almost no unchurched person I've talked to that isn't interested in that project. And it's really easy to have a conversation about it. So, the challenge, I think, from the example of Paul is church, let's go out of our way to have credible Jesus honoring conversations with people we are just meeting. All right, well, the story continues. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm, could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid, they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night... An angel of the God whom I serve, to whom I belong, whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island." All right, so as we heard in the first section, Paul kind of gave his opinion. And at that point, I think it was just common sense. He's like, guys, we're going into winter. This is when all the storms happen. We should not sail on. And I think the boat owner, the Roman captain, Julius the centurion, all of it, they look at Paul and say, okay, landlubber, (laughs) thanks for your opinion, uh, but we want to reach a better harbor called Phoenix, and that starts out okay, a little gentle breeze, but then pretty soon the hurricane comes. They get caught. And quickly they realize they this is way too strong. They can't tack into the wind. They have to just go with it. Now the crew is busy doing two things right away to ride out the storm. First of all, they got to get the lifeboard, a lifeboat aboard. It would have just been behind on a rope, and uh, they realize they're going to lose it, so they... Pull it in, get it on board. And then number two, um, they run ropes around the hull of the ship. And I don't know exactly how they did that. They must have already had things set up. But they, they run sh- ropes around and tighten them down. Must have been big ropes. And the great fear is off the course coast of North Africa are these sandbars that extend for miles out into the ocean. And so what happens is your ship runs aground, the storm pounds it, your ship falls apart, but you're still in water. You're still in probably 30, 40 feet of water. So all the people have to swim. But it's so many miles to the beach that everyone will die. So that's a huge concern. So what do they do? Well, they realize the only way to ride out a hurricane is we've got to do a couple things. Number one, lower the sails. We've got to pull the sails down. We don't want these hurricane winds catching the sails and make us go even faster. Number two, we've got to throw out a sea anchor. Well, what's a sea anchor? Well, that's a normal anchor. That's an anchor that you put down when you're in harbor or in the bay. Uh, Today, they're made of iron. Sometimes they're filled with a core of lead, whatever. They're heavy. That's that's a normal anchor. But when you're out in the middle of the ocean and it's 600 feet deep or 1,000 feet deep, you can't put down a normal anchor you gotta put down a sea anchor. Now, today, sea anchors are kinda of big parachute-like things. And so you'd run it off the bow, the waves hit the bow, but the, the line is holding you, and it slows you right down in the face of a huge wind. You still move, but it's far, far slower. Now, I did a bunch of research and I was like, okay, hey, they clearly didn't have nylon parachutes back in the first century. Uh, And I couldn't find exactly what they were made of, but I would think it would be the materials they had. And uh, we have recovered tons and tons of weaving uh, from that era. And they were expert weavers. And so I suspect it was some kind of like triple thick layered kind of woven basket kind of thing on ropes that would act just like the parachute does today. So all of this points to the details that Luke can provide. Remember, Luke's right there on the ship. And he's being very accurate. He's writing down all these kind of details. If he wasn't there, you wouldn't know that they had tried to lower the sails, throw out a sea anchor, all those kind of things. And, and it's part of the reason, as we've read through Acts, that we can have great trustworthiness in this account. It's, it's first person eyewitness. All right. Then it says they want this, they start throwing cargo overboard. Why would they do that? Well, they want the ship to be lighter. They want it to rise up higher in the ocean. When you've got huge waves swamping your boat, you don't want to be low down. That's eventually going to fill your hold with water. All right, then they throw tackle overboard. What would that have been? Well, it's not fishing lures. It would have been heavy stuff. Big, heavy, maybe wooden pulleys, iron anchors, all that kind of stuff. Throw it overboard. And then comes verse 20. And it, it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared after many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And that's pretty understandable. If you've ever been at sea in a crazy storm that just seems to keep going and going and going, uh, if you're prone to seasickness, you're going to feel seasick and you just feel terrible. Terrible. Uh, But more than that, it's just the depression. As far as you can see, waves coming at you, wind just feels like it's never going to stop. But right at that lowest point, when every person is feeling like, ah, we're going to die, we're we're giving up hope, that's when God does a miracle. And he, he sends an angel to give Paul a message. And Paul stands up and gives the most miraculous message of hope. He says to all 275 other people on board, he says, keep up your courage. Do not despair. Last night, an angel of the God whom I serve stood beside me and guaranteed that all of us will make it out alive. It's going to happen when we run aground on an island. All right, well, what happens next? Picking it up in verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. And have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. All together, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they let them into the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was being broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Amazing. Well, you think, finally on the 14th day, two solid weeks of being in a storm, thinking you're going to die every day. Nasty. Really, really exhausting. But all of a sudden, after 14 days, the sailors started to notice a change. Maybe they could see some kind of faint outline of land in the distance. Maybe it was a change in the waves or the wind. But all of a sudden, they realized, ah, I think we're getting close to land, and so they They want to find out how deep it is. Now, obviously, it's first century. There's no electronic depth sounders. So how did they find out the depth? Well, they would use something like this. It'd be a big, long spool uh, with line on it, a lead weight, and then markings at certain depth markings. And so as it went out, you counted. As little markings went through your fingers, one of the sailors would count, and they would know exactly how deep. So first time, it's 120 feet, and then they wait probably 15, 20 minutes and start again. Now they're at 90 feet. And they realize they're getting more and more shallow. Uh oh, if we land on this island, we are going to crash because this storm is still coming. So they realize we've got to stop ourselves. It's the middle of the night, so they throw four anchors off the back, and uh, it's holding them. And then they prayed for daylight. And daylight finally comes. Now the sailors, in a moment of total selfishness, kind of figure, forget these other idiots. We are saving ourselves. And they're like, go for the lifeboat, boys. And what's amazing is that the trust that Julius the Roman centurion has in Paul, Paul has told him and is going to tell him again, everyone has to survive or none of us do. And so he tells the soldiers, cut the ropes of that lifeboat, and it falls away. Now, I've been around fish boats and fishermen. I guarantee there was a whole lot of swearing going on at that moment. Uh, Are you guys nuts? This was our ticket out of here. We're all going to die. But Julius would have said something like, Paul has been right every time so far. I'm trusting his God is going to somehow get us through this. And that's when Paul kind of steps up and and takes this amazing leadership role. Remember, officially, Paul is still a prisoner. Really, technically, he's just one of the prisoners. But God is working through him in such a powerful way, he gets the attention of everybody on the ship. Everybody's listening. And he says, you guys are starving, you haven't eaten anything for 14 days. Eat some food. He stops, he he gives thanks for the, the food. And he says, all of us are going to make it out of this alive. Well, finally daylight comes. They have been so relieved. They see a bay, a sandy beach. And they attempt, of course, to get the ship in as close as possible. And it works for a bit. They get the sail up and they're going into the bay. But then the bow runs right into probably a sandbar or mud underneath. And it's stuck. And the waves keep hitting the back. And it's starting to break up the ship. And we find out that aside from Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, the ship's crew and soldiers, everyone else is a prisoner. Now, the Roman soldiers know that if one of those prisoners escapes, they're going to be held accountable. It's going to be their own life that's forfeit when they get back to Rome. And so they want to kill the prisoners. But the centurion says, no, if you kill the prisoners, you're going to have to kill Paul too. I don't want that to happen. We're going to listen to what he says. And so finally, that golden line, in this way, everyone reached land safely. You imagine how glad those guys would have been to crawl up on that beach. What a crazy, crazy experience. You know, through it all, I think God is doing two amazing things throughout this whole account. Number one, he is saving 276 lives but I think also in the midst of doing that he is showing Julius the soldiers the sailors even all the prisoners that he is powerful he is trustworthy and that Paul is a valid spokesman Paul would eventually write a letter to the church in Corinth in Greece second or yeah second Corinthians and in it he says these words But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul just didn't write those words abstractly. He wasn't just an ivory tower academic who sat there in comfort, sipping his cup of tea. Paul lived it out, real life, in all of its joys and all of its pains. And I think when Paul wrote those words and he says, I can still praise God in the midst of hardships, in the midst of difficulties, I think his mind went back, in, at least in part, to 14 days in a storm, having the ship broken up, having to swim to shore. And I don't know about you, but I find that pretty inspirational this morning. You know, probably, like me, maybe the last six months of your life has been with some challenges. But I don't think any of us have been in such the extreme situation that Paul and those guys found themselves in. But it's true, when we are going through hard times... Yeah, maybe we feel weak. When I am weak, then I am strong because of Christ's presence in us. So God the Father sends an angel and he reassures Paul and Paul stands up and reassures everyone else. And you think about it, the Holy Spirit of God was working active in Paul's life, keeping up his courage and hope. All throughout the account, Paul remains very calm. Despite the storm, despite all the craziness, He knows when to stand up and be a leader. Paul relied on the promise of Jesus. I'm sure he thought of that a hundred times. Christ promises that I would stand in Rome before Caesar and make my testimony there. I'm sure he was holding on to that. Now, despite all of that, did Paul feel in control on that ship in the middle of the Mediterranean in a storm for 14 days? Not a chance. I was in a storm, a bad one, for 24 hours, and I felt pretty out of control. Never mind 14 days. But I think here's the amazing and encouraging part, church God offers us the same strength in our times of fear and uncertainty and weakness. God the Father providing, the Holy Spirit guiding, and Jesus inspiring. All right. Well, what happens in the end? We're going to pick it up in chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home, showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So once everybody had swam to shore, stood up, and said to themselves, I'm alive, I can't believe we made it through this. The first question would have been, okay, so where exactly are we? Where have we landed? And the islanders tell them, you're on the island of Malta. Now, the the name Malta comes from Phoenician sailors, and it means refuge. Uh, No kidding, it's an island of refuge. So Paul, Aristarchus, Luke, and the rest of them, have definitely been led by God to kind of the only safe island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And that is where the people of Malta, oh, we have a picture. And this is where people of Malta traditionally believe the ship uh, crashed and landed and everyone swam to shore. And on that little island out in front, you can see a statue. And it's a statue they put up of the Apostle Paul, I think in like 1840 or something. So, Paul jumps in right away to gather wood for the fire. Of course, you need a fire. It even says it's still raining and cold. So, they want to build a big fire, start to dry everyone out, get everyone warm. That's when a deadly snake, a viper, slithers out, bites Paul right on the hand. And Paul just kind of calmly shakes it off into the fire. You see, I think after everything he's been through, Paul is so convinced that Jesus is going to make good on his promise. To get him all the way to Rome, that he doesn't even let this poisonous snake bite bother him. Sure enough, God does another miracle, allows Paul to be fine, nothing happens. And God has a real purpose in it, because right away it shows the islanders that something amazing, something supernatural is going on here. At first, they assume that Paul's some sort of God. But after a few days, I have no doubt that Paul would have taken the opportunity. To kind of correct that misconception and talk about the one true God. Well, the Romans have left a man named Publius in charge, and God shows Paul and his companions real favor in his eyes. It says that he welcomes them in, gives them incredible hospitality, would have probably given him clothes, food, uh, baths, all kinds of stuff. He welcomes them to his state, and Paul learns that the guy's father is sick. He goes up, prays for him, and the guy is completely healed. And that word of that spreads pretty quickly. And pretty soon all the islanders are bringing their family members who are sick. Paul's praying. People are getting healed. And the whole group of 276 actually stay on the island for three months before getting a new ship to sail for Rome. Between Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, you leave three evangelists like that on an island Where the everyone's welcoming you, I guarantee that there were lots of people that came to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. I've no doubt that all of their shipmates, from sailors to soldiers to prisoners, even if they didn't place their full faith in Christ right away, I think that a whole experience could could not have done anything but leave a massive impression on them. I bet some of them came to faith even later. The inevitable conclusion would have been, "Wow, Paul, you serve an incredibly powerful God. How do I get to know him? Well, when it's time to get on the new ship, the islanders, out of gratitude, uh, supply everything they need for the voyage. All the food, all the water, everything they need. And so here's my really simple observation as we wrap up this incredible story. God powerfully and obviously both cared and provided for all 276 people on that ship. And if we do a quick speed review, I think there's eight miracles that God did. Number one, he kept the ship together for 14 days of a brutal storm. Look how it broke up at the end. I think it's a miracle that things stayed together. Number two, God guided the ship to run aground on Malta. They were totally drifting, out of control, had no sense of steering, didn't know where they are going and God allowed them to land right where they needed to. Number three, no lives were lost when they jumped overboard and swam to shore. Number four, Paul is saved from a poisonous snake. Number five, Publius' father is healed. Number six, many sick people in Malta are healed. Number seven, God provides a new ship to go to Rome, and God uses the miracles of healing to create profound gratitude, allowing the new ship to be totally restocked. Eight miracles, eight really dramatic miracles that God did to show His care and His provision. Now, if I took every single person who's here this morning or watching online out for an iced coffee and I said, tell me about the times when God has miraculously provided for you in your life. Tell me about that. I think we could develop a really, really long list. And you know what? People in our lives, they need to hear that. Just like Paul and those guys gave testimony, I think the people around us need to know how God has looked after us, how he's cared for us, how he's provided for us. When Paul and his buddies show up in Malta, The general population had almost no knowledge of Jesus and their need for Him. But I'll bet by the time they left three months later, they all knew. And it's my prayer that God will continue to do miracles of care and provision in our life as a church corporately, also our individual lives, and why? Is it only for our benefit? No, it, it's, it is for our benefit because He loves us, He cares for us. But it also has a secondary benefit. God does those things as a testimony to the wider world. Maybe you're watching online today. You're living in another location, somewhere around the province. It's my prayer that God will bring those same miracles for you where you live. And I think that just like all 276 people on that ship found out, even in the midst of the storm, God provides for us and God wants to use us. Those are two pretty simple lessons, but I think they're incredibly profound. Amen? Cindy, come and pray for us.